Football is back. And right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football with games being played nearly every day. And with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Our guest this week, the usual crew, uh, The Athletic writers, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas and Mr Lee Dixon. Good morning, everyone. Morning, morning. We are going to take a closer look at the squad this week. Um, Before we do all of that, Lee, uh, we had some very sad news this week about the death of uh, Theo Foley. Um, yeah. I just wanted to get a few words from you. You work with a guy. Tell us a little bit about him and how he worked with George and the players. Well, I think like everything, you you only miss something when it actually it, it's gone. And and I think when we were um, certainly in the early days of having Theo, um, he was kind of part of the furniture, and we took him for granted. We he was a coach. He was very close to the players, um, and he was a brilliant conduit between. George, the strict disciplinarian, and and the and the the happy Theo, because that's what he was. He loved his job. He, he enthused about being around the players. Um, he joked, he laughed, um, and he was really relaxed. And I think, to a certain extent, back then, the players took a little bit of advantage to him. In, in as much as we used to take the Mickey out of him, he was kind of like the the butt of all the players' jokes, but he took it brilliantly well. He had a great sense of humour and he and he really relaxed the players and we needed that because George was, he was hardcore, you know, everything was very strict. It was, there wasn't an awful lot of laughing going on in training uh, because there was a job to be done and when that laughing um, did start, it was normally Theo who started it. So he was a, he was a great man to be around um, and through the years, I think a lot of George's success was built on on having Theo next to him and um, I don't think he got the credit he deserved um, he did deep down from the players because we all loved him um, and it's you know now he's gone I feel very sad that um, that I didn't perhaps share that with him enough over the years and um, I, I can't thank him for enough for put, putting me through um, George's um coaching sessions with a smile on his face because that, that, that's what I remember about him. He always had a smile, he always had a laugh and he'd always put his arm around you when you needed it. So he will be sadly missed. Amy, you, you met him a few times, didn't you? You knew him a little bit. Uh, yeah, not anywhere near as, as much as, as Lee. I mean, he, he left quite, uh, uh, quite soon after uh, the, the famous uh, 1989 moment. He left in 1990. Um, but I remember him almost most as a fan. And 
I think we talked about this when we had David Seaman uh, on the show about there was a moment where the fans used to sing Seaman, Seaman, do the twist. Well, actually, the original one was Theo. (laughs) And at away games, when he was warming up, I think particularly with the goalkeepers and so on, um, in his tracksuit, that we always used to sing Theo, Theo, do the twist. And he did it very exuberantly and really enjoyed sort of... Uh, a little bit of spotlight and had a great rapport. I mean, I don't know how many assistant managers have a great rapport with fans, but I mean, it was really natural and really strong and really genuine. And I think everybody loved Theo, uh, even people who didn't know him, because he had this kind of um, infectious, bubbly personality that he showed very easily. Um, The only other thing I would say about Theo that really struck me is Not so long ago, I was talking to George and he mentioned that the two hardest things he ever did in football ever that that maybe upset him more than he ever kind of cared to admit. One was when he let David Rocastle go to Leeds. And the second one was when he let Theo Foley leave to pursue a career in, in, in management himself. But I think part of that was that George felt that the team needed a little bit of a, 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 you know, a change. And you find people used to talk about how Alex Ferguson changed his number two quite frequently because it would bring in a different energy, a different voice, different ideas. And for whatever reason, I think George felt it was time to change something because obviously the team wasn't really going to change that much in, in that period, but it was a way of shaking things up slightly. Uh, and I think he felt really really sad because he loved Theo so much so it was a a difficult day for him as well and that just shows that he meant a lot to a lot of people now um we beat Sheffield United in the cup court final uh this weekend and then a few hours later we got drawn against Man City in the semis um I'd say that was pretty much the definition of a massive anti-climax so (laughs) we got to thinking what is the biggest anti-climax you've ever felt at football James I'll start with you um, there's a few. I tell you, the one that I have to say is the 2011 League Cup final, Arsenal <laughs> against Birmingham City, because I think what were we six years? I think without a trophy at that point, which given Arsene Wenger's success in the early part of his reign, felt like a long time. Birmingham were embroiled in a relegation battle, as far as I recall it, and there was sort of an expectation, wrongly, that Arsenal might just turn up and be a bit of a procession and of course it didn't pan out that way and to lose it as late as we did with the defensive mistakes it was an absolutely gut-wrenching day Uh, and I was there and yeah it's one of those things I barely talk about anymore because it was so painful. Yeah you know how we said we're going to be upbeat this week James yeah. (laughs) Sorry about that yeah. Uh, Amy what about you massive anti-climax we've had a few lately haven't we? Oh, well, uh, until James said that, I, I'd forgotten about how bad that was. <laughs> yeah. That was genuinely extremely harrowing. Um, and I remember going to that game with, with some of my sort of mates that we always went to games with. And it was the first time that one, one of us had, had kids that they brought. So it was a first outing at Wembley for two little boys that, that we, you know, were in our crowd. And just looking at their faces at the end, it was <laughs> made it a million times. I was I just thought, God, I don't know what to say to these poor Welcome children having witnessed Arsenal. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think uh, I've got uh, most of my biggest anticlimaxes, I would say, is the, and there's unfortunately a few to pick from on this, um, a, a European finals that didn't go the way Arsenal would have wanted. 
Um, Baku was awful last year as an experience. I mean, very anticlimactic in the sense of there was so much about the final in this location that was problematic already. Uh, as an event, it was weird because there were so few fans there. Um, and then the actual game itself and the aftermath and and the 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 calamity of what Arsenal had in their hands to play for in terms of Champions League place and then jettisoning that in that fashion was awful. But possibly even worse than that, um, I, I hated the 2000 final, which I think Lee played in, uh, mm. against Galatasaray. And mm. what was really hard about that is it was in Copenhagen, and anyone who had been to Copenhagen for the 1994 Cup Winners' Cup final, which Arsenal won, which was just a phenomenal kind of international party and we thought wow this is what Europe's all about it's the business it was like well we'll always have Copenhagen and then we went to Copenhagen and it was just a, a absolutely putrid game of football uh, and lost on penalties and I was quite excited because Dennis went and um, it was one of those that he went over land to a European game and you always thought he can get to this one and I, I always felt that sometimes in those matches that he could attend um, in Europe, that he got a bit, I don't know whether it was too much pressure on himself to be the man because of the special circumstances, but he didn't really perform that night. And that, you know, I, I really thought, God, what was his car journey home like? Anyway, <laughs> happy days. Yeah, <laughs> happy days. Lee, what about you? Well, unfortunately, I've got the same one as Amy. Um, a terrible, horrible trip. I remember there was loads of trouble as well, wasn't there, around mm. the city when we were trying to sleep in the afternoon and there was sirens going off. and So that built up the tension before the game, which from a player's point of view, you know, you want to you wanna build up towards a game and then calm down just before it and then you, you know, you're composed and all of that sort of stuff. But there was just a horrible atmosphere around before the game that, that made it, I was really on edge before. Um, I don't like all that sort of stuff. It really upsets me when there's crowd trouble and, 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 a, and a bad atmosphere in that respect. And then the game, as you said, the game was just horrid, wasn't it? It was just horrible. And then and we went to penalties and I didn't even get to take a penalty So because Patrick missed and I was the last penalty taker and I didn't even get to take one. So the anticlimax of that was properly there were all the boxes were ticked you couldn't get a worse game a worse <laughs> a wor well worse day worse no. night worse day it was just horrible yeah. the only thing it possibly could have been worse i could have missed the last one and we could have got beat because of me but i just blaming patrick now so at least there was a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel he's got broad shoulders it'll be all right uh, <laughs> um for me by the way uh anticlimactic moments really was um mesut ozil missing the penalty against bayern munich in the uh, in the Champions League, uh, we for that first ten minutes. I mean, Pep Guardiola said it. He was managing um, Bayern Munich at the time, and he said they got outplayed for ten minutes that season in the entire season, and that was that first ten minutes. We were I've never seen Arsenal play with an intensity like that, and we battered them. And then after ten minutes, we got a penalty, and we thought, right here we go. And then Mesut missed it, and it was like it was the air had just it was like a balloon deflating rapidly. What year was that? February 2014, it's apparently. 14, yeah. Um, well, I, I felt it really did feel like the moment 
if we'd have scored, who knows what might have happened with Arsenal, with Arsene Wenger. We probably would have ended up losing 5-1 in Munich anyway, but um, that killed me, uh, that one. I, I, was on, I was on holiday for that game, uh, somewhere far away, and I remember watching it in a bar full of Germans. And let's just say they weren't very diplomatic about it. <laughs> well, it was a terrible penalty, wasn't it? I mean, it was awful. Manuel Neuer did look about eight foot ten when I looked across at him when Mesut mm. was running up, but even still. Um, Lee, just before we started the podcast, we were talking about the fact that you were doing co-coms for um, Burnley against Crystal Palace. No, I wasn't co-coms, I was studio, because that's that's the whole point. The co-coms, normally the games I've done so far for NBC, I've had headphones on, so you don't... And there's mu- uh, music. <laughs> there's music going on in your ears. There's uh, <laughs> crowd noise. <laughs> ah, right, sorry. Yeah. I've got the music headphones, but the commentator's got the the crowd noise. So I've got crowd noise, so it's a little bit more atmospheric. But last night we did the uh, I did the Amazon Prime game with um, with Gabby Logan, and she was asking me questions about the the noise that was going on on the pitch. And I, are they shouting that much? Because we were, we were in the and the Arsenal fans will know this where the away fans go in at Selhurst Park and um, I, I could have thrown the ball on the pitch with a throw in I was that close and the noise it's it's the first time I've heard a game a competitive game that close um, without any any distraction of noise and it was just incredible she, she just kept saying is that is that the amount of noise and talking you do on a pitch and I was like yeah and she went and then two minutes later she said I don't believe that you normally talk and shout that much because every player's you know it's and it's incredible to hear you know, every player around the ball and then players who are making runs off the ball, players who are dropping deep for cover, they're all shouting something. It's, and the coaches as I mean, well, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and you can hear the coaches on the other side of the pitch. It's just incredible. I mean, I could hear Roy Hodgson barking out instructions to, you know, the uh, Van Arnholt. And it was just... Uh, and it was the first time that it, it, it came to me that it must be weird for the players on the pitch as well because a lot of the times, you, you know, you can hardly hear the player next to you you know I remember distinctly remember playing at Ellen Road and playing next to Martin Keown and and 20 yards away from him I couldn't I could see his lips moving and I couldn't and I was like what are you what are you trying to not, what are you trying to say Martin just tell and I couldn't hear his voice and Ellen Road is an incredible noise I don't know what it is about the stands there the noise just seems to come in and just hang over the pitch and um, and so there's a lot of stuff you don't hear on the pitch because of the crowd noise, but they must be able to hear every single thing when, when they're playing now, which is kind of it's a bit strange. Arsenal are about to play their first home match at the Emirates Stadium, so it feels particularly pertinent. Do you think, <clears throat> do you think as a player, there's any degree to which it's a little bit more difficult to focus and psych yourself up without having that crowd there? Is there sort of a danger that it feels a bit like a training session? Yeah, a little bit. And I was talking to Gabby last night about this when we were, you know, off air. And I was saying one of the things that's, that I've only just started to work out is the players are behaving differently on the pitch as well. There's there's right. different, there's different, and there's definitely a different attitude to the referees. They're not answering the referees back as they norm, much as they normally do. Lee, there's less that, anger, isn't there? Less adrenaline, yeah. I yeah. guess. Yeah, maybe maybe it's it's linked to adrenaline, and and you're right. Definitely less anger. There's less 
there's, there's um, because you, you you do play up to the crowd. There's no doubt about that. I could definitely play at, at Highbury, and if it was if we were having a bit of a slump in the game and we weren't playing particularly well and the crowd has started to drop, I would I would definitely do something on the pitch that would uh, get my section of the fans. You know, if I'm down by the the corn flag at the North Bank or or the clock end or something. And I would like, I'd, I'd square up to maybe Graham Lasso or something. And then all of a sudden the crowd would go, oh, and then, and you, so you, you do have a relationship with the crowd. There's, there's definitely a difference in the player behaviour uh, towards referees and also each other, um, which is, is strange as well. Amy, I mean, we just were talking beforehand about how, how poor a lot of the games have been, particularly in the first half. I mean, football without crowds, it's, it's a pale imitation, isn't it, really? Living fairly nearby over the last uh, few weeks and months, I've been going for a walk or a cycle and spending quite a lot of time going round and round the outside of the Emirates while it's kind of just been sort of standing there almost as a, uh, as a centre point for local people to go and get some space and some fresh air. And... Um, I just almost thought, I'd got, got, it's going to be so strange. I ha- have been in there when there's not that many people around, but not watching a match. Um, so I was try- trying to project how it might feel, just listening to the Lee there talking about everyone shouting instructions. So can you imagine how hilarious it would be if somebody, I don't know, um, if somebody neutral, shall we say, happened to be have access to one of these games and someone's about to shoot me. You know, if all yeah. these instructions are going along, yeah, he's <laughs> over there. Go that way. <laughs> you, could, you could be very, mis- very mischievous. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of the North London derby, for example. But do you, anyway, do you, uh, how do we get in? Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> do you I'm think doing by the that way, game as well, the North London derby? I can't wait to start slagging the Tottenham players off from the gantry. <laughs> I can't wait to listen to that on my live feed. I um, do you think? I know we weren't going to talk about this today, but just briefly. Um, do you think that when fans do come back, uh, th- that the authorities might treat them slightly differently now, knowing how important they are to the general spectacle? It's just an open question. No, I, th- I think that it's just there's going to be so much caution, and I think it'll happen in, in a slow, gradual way. The reintroduction of fans, uh, I, I believe, there's already been some preliminary talks um, about how they begin to reintroduce some crowd. Um, I don't know whether they've got as far as setting sort of ideal sort of numbers to be starting with and then building up from from there. But there's definitely a lot of will to begin getting fans in. I suspect think sort of families and people who live in the same house will be prioritised uh, and there might be ballots. Um, but if you can imagine, they might start off with, I don't know, a couple of thousand or 5,000 or maybe even 10,000. I don't know how many you can socially distance within, say, the Emirates, because if you imagine trying to do that, you, you can't have probably someone in the row in front or behind of you. So they'll have to be kind of, it, it presumably um, a kind of free row in between anyone that's sitting and then gaps between people who are not connected, if you like. But just like being at the... Uh... At Highbury, when I made my debut against Luton, it was only nineteen thousand there. <laughs> it was socially distanced. Yeah. Um, uh, look, we're going to uh, we will talk more about that, obviously, as uh, as changes happen. Um, we're also the other. There's going to be some changes to the Arsenal squad. We imagine at the end of the season. We thought this week we'd just take a quick look at the squad and make an executive decision here at Handbrake Off as to whether Arsenal should keep them or bin them. Basically, um, oh my god! I know. I, well, 
<laughs> we'll keep That's account of how good. many we keep. Um, we'll start. We'll end up with a five-a-side team. <laughs> well, OK. Let's start with the goalkeepers. Uh, we've got Bern Leno, um, Emmy Martinez and Matt Macy. Um, I haven't seen Matt Macy play very much, but he's... Um, uh, are we OK with the goalkeepers generally, Lee? Yeah, I, I think Leno... I, you know, I always ask the relevant players that I played with whether what position they're in, whether they're any good or not. And uh, Dave Seaman says Leno ticks the boxes for him, so that's good enough for me. Isn't he a bit small, Amy? Small? Is he? Yeah. Um, he see, doesn't seem very big much. when you look at yeah. him. I mean, I, he right. doesn't, I look at Peter Schmeichel and he just looks enormous, for example, or Dave Seaman. I don't know whether it's the short sleeves and stuff. I don't, maybe that's he's a six two, box to say. He's not that small. I mean, he's not... He's not um, sort of Courtois massive or anything, but I don't think he's Ospina ostensibly <laughs> sort of tiny, yeah. thankfully, either. So, I, I, in a way, it's one of those things where you think if you could blend together some of the qualities of um, Leno, who I think's had a fantastic season overall, with Martinez, uh, you'd get a really interesting keeper because maybe Leno's one area that doesn't always work is crosses sort of dominating in the air. And I think Martinez seems quite bold in that regard. So if you could sort of weld that on to Leno's uh, excellent shot-stopping and temperament, um, that'd be good. But maybe they can work together more in training and try and bring the, the best out of each other. But obviously Leno has got to get well soon first. If you want a tall goalkeeper in, you want to see more of Matt Macy. He's about, I think he's six foot seven. It's not tall necessarily. <laughs> it's not the only... <laughs> if we, we just decide purely on height from now on, then it's going to be third choice behind Macy and Martinez on that basis. Chinese well, guy I who think... plays in the NBA, he's seven foot one, we'll get him. Yeah, Peter, Crouch, Peter Crouch has got a pair of gloves. There we go. Yeah. I actually think goalkeeper, we're all right, you know. I mean, it, it's funny saying it because it was such a problem position. You know, when David Seaman retired, we had Jens Lehmann and then after that, we really struggled. Uh, but I think... Leno seems great, and I actually think Martinez, what he's shown so far, he looks a pretty competent, capable deputy, which is kind of what you need at Premier League level. So I'm actually relatively happy with the goalkeepers. Lee, would you, Lee, we'll let you do the centre. We'll let you do the defenders. We'll just sit back. Well, Lee, any defenders <laughs> particularly um, you want to stay? I mean, we got. Oh, this could be quick. Actually, we got Hector Bellerin, Kieran <laughs> Tierney, Socrates, Rob Holding, Cedric Suarez, Mustafi Chambers. Mari, Louise, oh. and Kalasinac. Now, Louise, you can't say anything about because he is staying. But staying. of the rest of them, who do you Tierney. rate? Tierney. Yeah. Coach. Coach. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Coach Hector Bellerin. I quite like Suarez, but I don't. You know, I I think we can do better than both of them unless Hector. I want him to be coached mm. a little bit more, and he's got this huge amount of potential, but he's just standing still at the moment. So, um, do you think Suarez is all right, Lee, from what you've seen of him? Yeah, but I don't think he's, you know, he's 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 a squad, you know, he's a he's a squad player. But if that's what, if you're saying to me, right, first team right now, then it'd be a very short list. If yeah. we, you know, we get this podcast over now if you want. And just go. <laughs> so, you know yeah. what I'm like. I'm, you know, I, I say what I think. So if you if you if you want me if you want an in depth thing and you want it brutal if you want it brutal then we just go straight through it now and and you know Rob Holding I think should stay Tierney and then I'm struggling. You know if if that's the case, but that isn't the case. That that would be 
silly to say that because we can't fill all those spaces in. So is it going to be a practical, sensible discussion? No, or is it just no. a laugh and I'm just... Brutal, you know, please. Brutally. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Tierney. Yeah. <laughs> we must also say Saliba's going to be there next year as well. He so is. we need to add his name. Okay, we got half a defence there. That's quite good. Nobody, nobody's keeping Callum Chambers, by the way, because I, I don't know. I still think there are possibilities with him. You can't do this in a in a fifteen minute podcast. You, so you've got to be either silly or not do it. We felt so, silly was the, the only <laughs> silly was really the only way to go for something like this. So we're keeping Kieran Tierney and the goalkeepers. <laughs> Just on Tierney, uh, Lee. Yeah. Um, is he the second coming of Nigel Winterburn? Well, I heard you say that. I yes. saw that on uh, Twitter and I was going to respond and then I, I thought, no, I won't because you're my friend. Um, <laughs> That's a no Nigel then, respond, Amy. That's a I no. Did, yeah. I did, I'm not sure I saw a response from Nigel, but I don't know. I, I think he did. did saying, can yeah. I make my mind up in 13 years or something like that? There you so. go. Oh, I have to that find that. Be... Did Nigel yeah, ever carry a Tesco's carrier bag into the ground? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> there's something old school. That's uh, why I like him. That's something very grounded about Kieran Tierney as well, isn't there? He seems like a like a nice guy. I mean, I'm told by other friends of ours who know where he lives that he's been doing shopping for the older people upstairs during the lockdown. He just seems like a nice kid. And a good player. I mean, yeah, look, it's early days for him, isn't it? But he does look promising. Yeah, I he mean, does. And in that defence, that's very welcome. Sponsors Handbrake Off, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Carries was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, a weighted ergonomic handle, five precision engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. I haven't been shaving for a while. Right now I look a little bit like Saddam Hussein is when he came out of the hole, but some people are still keeping their standards up. And if you're one of them, as a listener of Handbrake Off, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash off right now. That's harrys.com forward slash off. Um, let's do the midfielders. Um, I mean, we've got Danny Ceballos, Mesut Ozil, Lucas Torreira, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Joe Willock, Matteo Guendouzi and Granite Xhaka. Um, there's not a lot of creative. I'm not doing this. You're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a hard, That is a tough list. I've got to say. It I is. mean, when you read that out, you know, I think that is the part of the pitch where Arsenal have got the most problems, actually. Um, and really, there's not. You know, the, the one Arteta picks uh, consistently, and who is giving the team some kind of structure is Shaka, and we all know that Shaka's got his problems along with that. So. It's really difficult to know where to start, to be honest. Just on Xhaka, um, throwing this one to, to Lee, do you think that even for a player of sort of that kind of age and experience, that if you get, if you come under the influence of the right manager or coach, if Arteta might be that man, that he can change or learn or absorb new things into his game? Because he does, 
you know, it feels like there's a big relief at the minute when he's on the on the pitch in, in midfield. And that tells you a lot about Arsenal's midfield in a, in a bigger picture. But, you know, he, he has qualities that are needed now. And is there, a, is there a chance that he might evolve if things click with him or if there's different players around him? Or do you think Xhaka is what Xhaka is at his age? No, I think I think there's there's definitely um, there's definitely a place for uh, players to to have other players fit around them, as you mentioned. And if if um, if Arteta can do that with him and find a a pattern of play and 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 players that complement the way he plays and his deficiencies, but you know, there's no doubt that he's. And I've said this before. I don't think it's necessarily the stick he was getting was his fault. I think he genuinely goes out and tries. I don't think he shirks responsibilities. And I, I think um, a lot of the criticism that he got was um, was unfair at times. But I, I've been probably one of his biggest critics. I, don't, I just don't think that. He's good enough to be our number one central midfield player. So that's my opinion on him. We've grown at Xhaka and shirking responsibilities. I must have watched 10 match of the days in the last couple of years when Alan Shearer has basically said that's exactly what he's been doing, letting people no, run but off. I, I, yeah, but I, 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 I'm not saying he doesn't make mistakes. And he, what he does, I don't, think he, I don't think he's good enough to understand when to make tackles, when to run with players. He's just, it's, it's not because no. I'm not going to run with him because I'm lazy. It's because his his brain isn't working quick enough and doesn't know where to go. The Patrick Vieira would go well. I'd go there now. I'll do this now, and his brain's working slightly differently. It doesn't mean to say I, I've never really I've never seen him. I've never seen him uh, pull out of a tattle. I've seen him make really poor tattles where where he hasn't been good enough to win the tattle. That's a different thing. So I, I yeah I can understand Alan saying. You know, he, he's shirking the responsibility. I, d- I honestly don't think it's necessarily down to that. I think he's just not good enough. I think his nature as well is that he plays at the base of the midfield, but he's someone who I think thinks a lot more about what he's going to do with the ball than what he's going to do without it. And he's he's happy in possession. He's, you know, he wants to be spraying passes around. But he in wants terms the of, ball, doesn't he? He does yeah, want the but, ball. And, and there is a kind of responsibility in that. You know, he's happy to, to take, take the ball and take responsibility, but it's when he doesn't have the ball... He encounters problems, and it's not his commitment. It's as Lee says, it's his decision making, his awareness. It's all that other stuff. And I don't know if you can add that at this stage in your career. To be honest, I think, I think there's something a bit more intuitive there by this stage. One other midfielder I wanted to talk about was Matteo Guendouzi. There's, he was left out of the game uh, the other day. Um, is it just Amy? I'll ask you. Is it just that he's young, or is he a, a little bit boneheaded sometimes? I think it's quite hard to evaluate exactly why Mikel Arteta is making all the choices that he's making. I mean, it, it looks very much from the outside looking in as if he's wanting to send out very clear messages. And if people respond well to his messages, then the door is open for them to have chances. And if people are more trying in, in their attitude and he's not so keen, then I don't think he's got any qualms about being quite pointed about uh, about his response to that. So I think we can only regard Guendouzi at the moment in terms of what we imagine Arteta might want to do with him again. And I don't know what that is. I don't know whether he thinks um, he's young enough that if we can get his head screwed on and teach him a few lessons, he can, he can really fly after that and, and grow. 
or it might be that it's like it's a lesson not just to him but to the whole squad as a as a as an entity uh that if if you if you're not doing what's expected of you don't care who you are which is a good message i think fundamentally given the way the squad's been over the recent years and the thing about Guendouzi as well is that uh, he does obviously have lots of potential and lots of qualities that are probably a bit challenging for any coach to try and harness. But he's also someone that, you know, Arsenal are supposedly in the market and there's been rumours and I have no idea whether they're true or not. Um, but I think he's someone they can make some good money out of considering what they paid for him. So given that Arsenal are going to likely have to sell a bunch of players this summer in order to raise funds to bring in hopefully uh, a different kind of calibre of player or personality who can work in the way that Arteta really wants so he can build his team more. Um, it may be that it's not going to happen. I think we'll find out a little bit more over these next few weeks and if he's back in the team playing well, then Arteta might want to pin some hopes on him. But if not, then it wouldn't be a massive surprise to see that he possibly is cashed in on. James, I remember Guendouzi running the game against Spurs, being the, the best player on the pitch when we beat them. I mean, he has got the ability, hasn't he? On his day, yeah. But, I mean, he's young and he's inconsistent as a consequence. And I do think that when you come into a club as a coach, you're trying to establish a culture, you're trying to change the way people behave, people interact. If someone is problematic and consistently problematic in that regard, you know, this isn't the first time Ganduzi's fallen foul of Arteta, then maybe you do have to draw a line at some point. Um, and, and I think the fans would back Arteta in that because I think they all look at Arsenal and recognise something does have to shift. And if it means that there are a couple of sort of sacrifices on that altar, so be it. Can I put something out there in terms of the forwards that I've been thinking about, about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who obviously is a superstar forward and scores a lot of goals. But it seems to me that if Arsenal are going to rebuild, the things they need more than anything are a really good centre-half and a really good central midfielder. And you might be able to get that if you sold Aubameyang. Lee? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt when you're trying to rebuild, you're looking at your assets and you're saying, which ones can we afford to, to let go and which can we get the most money for? And there's a balancing act and... Amy quite rightly pointed out with Gwen Doozy might be one of those that is allowed to go because he's still young and he and he and potentially could get some decent money for him. And if Arteta's made his mind up on that, um and you know, the the clock is definitely ticking down for Gwen Doozy in the in the patience um department. So at some point there will be a break there and it right, I've had enough, he's not gonna learn, you know, we, we get rid of him. So but Aubameyang is, is your biggest asset. If you can balance getting somebody else in that can get three quarters of his amount of his goals and then buy two players that can fill in the gaps elsewhere that you need more, then, yeah, there's no doubt that that may happen. But it's a big, big gamble to get rid of that amount of goals out of your team because he has single-handedly kept Arsenal mid-table. <laughs> you know, without, <laughs> without his goals, we could be in serious trouble. So... Um, so it's a, it's, it's a really difficult one because the, the money's not there necessarily to be to be uh, to be spent because of the European position and um, and that's been that's getting worse and worse each year. So um, it's real really difficult. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. I'm you know I, I haven't got the figures and I haven't got the the hands on all the 
I just want to go back to Gendouzi though quickly, if you, if I may. Yeah. Um, a player like him need, needs to be managed. Obviously, he's one of those, and that's not, you know, there's been play, thousands of players like that that need to be managed carefully. I think Arteta's in a perfect place. I've been been with Pep and had players similar um, throughout his career that he's, you know, learning to deal with those players. He seems like he's doing it in a way that I would, you know, to leave him out, that's good and all that. But but also from from the manager's point of view, it, it'd be great if you could, if the team could manage that as well and it'd be a joint a joint affair where the, the majority of the stuff is being done outside of the manager's office and, and then he just, you know, keeps it, ticking along in his in his authoritarian way by saying no you're not playing this week because you've done this 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 the rest of the stuff should be going on not just in the dressing room in the training ground etc but also his position of when he does play it should he should be sitting on the bench watching all this really good midfield play going in front of him and going I want to get in that team and when I do get in that team I'm going to do this, this and this to make sure I stay in that team. At the moment, he goes in that team and does what he wants. He plays off the cuff. He does, you know, he's no real, there's no real accountability to his play other than Arteta going, no, you know, I don't see the rest, the other side of the management from the players. So it's, that's not his fault. You know, that's where the club has fallen to a, um, a state where they can't manage players from within their own training ground dressing room. So that's that's a difficult thing. I suppose the point I was making, Lee, was that if we did sell a Bamiyang and we bought in, let's just say, a, a midfielder like Patrick Vieira and a defender like Virgil van Dijk, not that we're going to get them, <laughs> but you understand the point I'm making. If, if Matteo yeah. Guendouzi next to a midfielder like Patrick Vieira... Well, Patrick would just tell him where to go and would guide him round the pitch. And after a couple of years, he wouldn't need telling anymore. Or he would carry on doing what he's doing, and then <laughs> you would, you know, get rid of him. So because we don't, the you other... don't know which way Guendouzi is going to go. He, 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 you know, no. he's a he's a spirited young man, and at the moment he's got foggy thinking because he thinks he's, you know, he's okay. But and that, that's again, that's good if you can harness it. Amy, on the forwards, um, there's a lot of potential, isn't there, on the forward line? I look at the six players, Pepe and Nelson and Enketio and Martinelli and Lacazette and Aubameyang. I mean, that is a decent that is a decent collection of forwards we got there. It is, but not necessarily entirely of their own volition. They haven't scored that many goals this season. Arsenal's goals scored this se- over the course of the season, you know, granted it's been a turbulent, difficult campaign, is not... The numbers are not outstanding um, for players of that variety of experience and quality. Uh, I would say that uh, I was very enthused by Pepe's performance uh, since restart. Not not absolutely every minute of every game, but I think he's shown a lot more of the variety of characteristics required to be really effective. Um, Obviously, he scored a great, great goal. Uh, down at Brighton and he took his penalty extremely well. He was quite involved in a lot of moments up at Sheffield United where they were kind of nearly goals. Uh, I think he was a headache for their their defence. He was often found himself in little pockets of space in that right channel and his movement was good. He was also much to Arteta's satisfaction tracking back, uh, putting in tackles and showing a lot more defensive responsibility and Arteta's comments afterwards, I thought, were really striking. He seemed to have a good 
clue about what was making him tick and the things that he needed to hone to make him even better. And he talked about how sometimes in games he maybe feels a bit disconnected and switches off. And that's what he wants to work on to make sure that that's kind of knocked out of him, that he's on it all the time, trying to uh, be dangerous and also work hard for his team. Um, I think next year, with a bit of luck, the real Pepe will feel able to express himself after maybe, a, you know, a quite difficult first season adaptation-wise. Saka's just a wonder. And that's just a, a, such a, a boon for Arsenal that he's in the team wherever he plays. Um, it's great. Uh, Lacazette is an interesting one because it's been such a tough season for him. And again, I think he's one that they would... You, you always felt like with the contractual situation with Aubameyang and Lacazette, there's two experienced players uh, coming towards the end of contracts that, you know, it makes sense to keep one and maybe one might got, get sold to cash in. But I think the decision-making on that must be really, really difficult because presumably they would prefer to keep Aubameyang in terms of what he's actually able to give on the pitch more easily. Um, his end product is infinitely superior this season. Uh, but like I said, you know, if maybe the one is one that doesn't... <laughs> Your dog's got something to say about this, Lee. Yeah, yes. he, he wants Aubameyang to stay. That's there you go. He's, just, well, he's, a, uh, he's got his mark to God's ears. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, there's the youngsters, Martinelli and then Ketty and so on, have got so much m- more potential. Huge. But you've got to give them time, I think, selling or um, cashing in on too many of the older players. It would be, it'd be a bit risky. Yes. It'd be very bold to go into it with, you know, Martinelli obviously is injured. We're not quite sure yet how severe and long that's going to be. Um, but it looks like if there's a, if there's sales there, there probably ought to be some recruitment there as well. It's just all about what they decide to do with Aubameyang and Lacazette, really. It you is. know, Aubameyang's 12 months out from expiry, two years for Lacazette. You know, I can't see them giving Lacazette a new deal at this point, given the way he's playing. So there is an argument to sell both. If you do that, you leave a massive gulf in the squad. And as promising as Martinelli and Ketia are, you would need someone in there, more senior, a bit of experience, reliable, who can score goals. So it all comes down to what they decide on on those two players, really. I wouldn't be against a kind of, you know, uh, a big move of moving them on and bringing someone else in, but only if... You're bringing in not a guarantee of goals, nothing's a guarantee, but someone who is more experienced and more reliable than the promising players we do admittedly have. I mean, I'm, I'm just, it's interesting enough. I, I, I took this list off the Arsenal website of the squad players, and, and for some reason it doesn't clue, uh, include uh, Bukayo Saka. Um, I hope that's not some sort of uh, foreshadowing <laughs> of what's to come. Um, but yes, Amy, you're absolutely right. He is one we definitely, definitely uh, want to keep. He is a wonder, and he seems to be able to play uh, pretty much anywhere. Uh, Lee, we're going to let you go at this point. It's been lovely to talk to you as always. Thank you. I'm going to calm a dog down now. Yes, telling probably Bami best. Yang staying. Okay. <laughs> Hello, this is producer Tayo. I'm just giving you a break from Ian's voice for a second to tell you that to celebrate the return of the Premier League, we're offering 40% off a subscription with The Athletic for a limited time only. All you got to do is go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to sign up for less than £3 a month. At The Athletic, we care about every club with a dedicated journalist for each team. And for Arsenal, we've even got two. So sign up now to enjoy unrivaled coverage and insight of all 20 sides as the season reaches its belated conclusion. 
Thanks to Lee, as always, and his dog as well, for his considered views on uh, <laughs> Bamiang. Um, now, uh, you guys have been writing away uh, for The Athletic. Um, by the way, there's also, uh, aside from what Amy and James, you've been writing about, uh, there's also, as part of the Reconsidered series, Michael Cox has written a piece um, about how good was Andre Arshavin. Um, you know what? Whatever else Arshavin does... For me, scoring that goal against Barcelona was one of the best moments of my life, and I'm happy to have witnessed it. Uh, but I think this was more about the uh, the four four, wasn't it? Uh, James, um, you had some memories of that game and what he did. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, my memories of the game are just, uh, to be honest, mainly my irritation that Arsenal <laughs> didn't win it. Yes. Uh, yes, I don't know if you remember after Arshavin scored the fourth, <laughs> they we probably they went up the other end and scored an equaliser, oh. which was absolutely infuriating, but. Someone who was quite close to Andre said that they met up with him after that game and he was very excited. He said, did you see it? Did you see my performance? And the guy said, yeah, you scored four goals. And Andre said, I know. And that's all I did. But, <laughs> and that was his performance. I mean, I think Michael Cox touches on this, but he was not He was barely in the game and just the ball dropped to him four times and he buried it on every occasion. It was kind of... an unbelievable night where everything went from him and at that point I was so excited about him being an Arsenal player of course I mean it didn't sustain and he, he never quite delivered on that potential but in that six months when he first arrived he was fantastic to watch. Amy what about you and, and thoughts about Oshavin? Well I think um, I think even his signing was tremendously exciting I think uh, I think everyone remembers him sort of appearing in the snow on deadline day or whenever it was and standing into looking at the camera, going, "I am Gunnar," or whatever, which you know, <laughs> uh, which I always thought was just a great, you know, uh, a great phrase in itself. It should be on a T-shirt. I am Gunnar. Yeah, that's it. Um, but he, he, you know, he 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 was exciting and so maverick-like that you, you sort of had affection for him for his flaws as well as for his brilliance, mm. uh, which is uh, you know certain players you know, can't get away with even the tiniest mistake. Um, and certain players just have this kind of goodwill amongst people because people sort of can't help but warm to them, even if they've got imperfections. And, and as a player at Arsenal, Arshelvin did have imperfections because he was inconsistent. And I think he was probably living the life in London and maybe that reflected a little bit in his overall time here. Um, but I, just, just in the spirit of kind of, uh, creating a cyclical pod and going back to the beginning and talking of anticlimaxes. One of the things I remember about Baku uh, uh, that also made it even more annoying was that Arshavin was there. And I was quite ex- sort of quietly, stupidly excited about this. And we were in the, the press room about t- a couple of hours or so before kickoff and he was just sitting around with everybody else and he had his little uh, crew of people he was working for covering the game. I just kept kind of glancing over, thinking, ah, oh, you know, I didn't know him at all. Like, I quite like to go and say hello, or, and I thought, you know what, I'll, 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 I'll maybe try and catch a moment to just go and get his autograph for one of my sons, because their first game was a game that finished one nil against Swansea, and Arshvin got the goal, and I thought oh, that might be quite nice, you know, they like that kind of thing. 
So uh, I, I caught, tried to catch a moment when he wasn't in conversation with people and I sort of wandered over and asked for an autograph and he was really sneery about it. <laughs> so I was... It was, it was, again, a massive anticlimax. <laughs> oh, no. How sad. Maybe I just caught him at a bad moment, you know. I'll always give people the benefit of the doubt. We did mention the, uh, about Pepe. You were talking about Pepe and the, the piece you wrote uh, for The Athletic this week was about Pepe and how he's finally starting to show some of the promise. And you were saying that it's sort of Mikel Arteta's project. He's got a, He's got a plan for him. Well, he was actually asked specifically that question by one of the journalists after the game. They said, is he, is he a bit of a project for you? And um, although Mikel didn't really want to come, and come outright and say, well, yes, of course he is, you could tell from the way in which he talked about him that he's quite intrigued by Pepe's potential and by what is going to be needed to fully realise that. Um, and at one point he he did the, one of those nice steely-eyed expressions that he gives after giving him lots of compliments and said, I will persevere with him, you know, and it, it felt quite... Um, <laughs> the message was great, I thought, overall, and while I was sitting there listening to him talking about Pepe, uh, it, it just... The contrast between the, his expressiveness talking about players and their qualities and their potential compared to... His predecessor was, it clanged like a, you know, like a great big brick falling on your head. Um, and I, I, I wondered uh, whether, as I always think that the way a, 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 a head coach or manager talks and expresses themselves and evaluates players publicly is probably not a million miles away from how they express themselves, you know, within the training ground. Uh, you tend not to be that clever of having totally different personas, I think. And... You can see why a player would get, would really want to listen and learn. Whereas I think with Unai, he hated talking about individuals. If you ever asked him a question about an individual player, even if they'd had a brilliant performance or it was only positive, what you had to say, there was no tricks, there was no trying to kind of catch somebody out here. He, it was like he was absolutely had a mental block and couldn't do it. So... I do, I do remember some a guy from coming over from the Czech Republic and he had like one minute to ask his one question at a press conference and said, oh, Petr Cech's about to break the record for the number of whatever it is, Premier League appearances for a goalkeeper or thousand. I can't remember exactly the, the milestone. And he said, you know, what can you say about Petr Cech? And <laughs> Unai Emery basically turned around to Czech television or whatever and said, well, all of our goalkeepers are great, and um, yeah, I'm really happy with everybody. And this guy was so deflated, you yeah. know, and he thought, God, that's a long old journey just for, for that. And it was kind of symbolic of this resistance to, um, to engage with specific players and their specific stuff going on. Whereas I think Arteta embraces that. And that's part of how he wants to unlock players, unlock their potential, understand them, relate to them speak to them in a way that they're going to understand that might make them tick. Um, and that's where I think he's got this idea that this is how I operate. And if you're not into it, well, I'm maybe not that into you either, which is where some players might find themselves a bit on the fringes. I mean, it, James, the piece you wrote is sort of linked to this, really. You wrote about um, the difference between the left and the right for Arsenal, didn't you? And about, about Saka and the number of times he connected 
um, with uh, with uh, Kieran Tierney, wasn't it? And the fact that uh, that Tierney often fed him the ball. And I guess maybe Pepe suffers a bit because uh, Hector Bellerin often turns back inside and gives it to Mustafi. Yeah, well, that was after the Southampton game. And I do think that one of the encouraging things to come out of the cup tie against Sheffield United was... Arsenal did look a threat down the right. As Amy mentioned, I thought they got Pepe involved a lot more. Maitland-Niles combined with him well. I thought even Lacazette came short and combined with him a few times. Uh, So I'm encouraged by that and I'm hoping that will lead to more balance in the future. But it's interesting because when I think back to Arsene Wenger's, well, one of his, probably his best team, the 2004 Invincibles. I wouldn't say that when Lee's on, but uh, the left-hand side was was crucial. I mean, there was a kind of left-sided bias in that team. You think of Ashley Cole, um, Robert Perez, Thierry Henry drifting out to that flank. Vieira, I think, used to play to the left of the central midfield, so he'd be combining with those guys frequently too. It was just so strong. And when you look at Tierney, you look at Saka, you look at Martinelli, who is happy drifting out to that flank too. I think there is real reason for Arsenal to be encouraged about the future of that side. I mean, Saka has been pretty excellent in whatever position he's been asked to play but I do think if you can get him combining with those guys going forward that is something to be genuinely optimistic about Amy anything to add to that Saka is is an unbelievable player for the AGs well I think the only thing to add is really really simple one sentence which is please can we get news that the contract is signed as soon as humanly possible sign him up yeah I think you're absolutely right. Um, let's have a song. Uh, by the way, I should say uh, that uh, Tayo, uh, our producer, did, uh, because we were talking about David Bowie being on um, uh, on BBC Two on uh, on Sunday, and I think they should show Bowie every Sunday night just to keep us uh, happy, but uh, he suggested changes uh, from David Bowie for a song. I'm not sure we can top that, but Amy, have you got one? Well, um I looked up a couple of songs with Plastic Bag in the title uh, in honour of Kieran Tierney. There is a song by Julian Cope um, that I, I, from an album called Fried that I love called Reynard the Fox, which has a really... He just goes off on a quite psychedelic speech um, and, some, and this character spills his guts out of a plastic bag. But that one's probably not, not the best choice. Um, uh, X-Ray Specs uh, wow. also have a song called Plastic Bag and um, Ghost Poet has one called Plastic Bag Brain, which is quite a good song, actually. Uh, otherwise, I agree with you on Bowie, and, and I just would I would suggest Wild is the Wind, just because when he came on and started singing that, I thought it was one of the great moments. I don't know if it's very related, but Lee's dog is called Ziggy. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> James? Yeah, I mean, I was going to suggest something from Bowie myself. I hadn't decided what, so either of those would work well for me. I actually missed the rerun of his performance on BBC at the weekend, so I'm going to have to go and seek that out now after hearing you guys chat about how great it was. Yeah, you are. But, uh, I, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with Tayo uh, changes. I was thinking about should I stay or should I go <laughs> as well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Bowie, we'll, I think we'll take changes. Um, it's been lovely talking to you guys uh, after, after a couple of wins 
Let's. I like happy podcasts. It's quite nice. Um, thank you, Amy. Thank you, James. Thank you, Tayo, for producing the show. And thank you to Lee Dixon and his dog. Um, this has been Handbreak Off, the Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. See you next week. <laughs>